This is Judaism Unbound, Episode 16, Intermarriage and the Future. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofus. We're here today in the second episode of our series on intermarriage, the new normal. We're joined today by Paul Golan, who was until recently the Associate Executive Director of Big Tent Judaism, an organization that specializes in helping intermarried people connect to the Jewish community. Uh, Paul is a well-known writer, speaker, advocate, and consultant on many of the most important issues of the day facing the Jewish community, including intermarriage. He describes himself as the white Ashkenazi half of a Jupanese, Jewish and Japanese, Jewish multiracial household. He maintains the Jupanese page on Facebook and tweets at at Paul Golan. So, Paul, we are so excited to have you today. Thanks so much for being with us. Sure. Thanks for having me. So, Paul, when we were getting set up to record, you mentioned that you've been actually listening to the podcast, and I'm wondering if there are any ideas that we have laid out already that particularly connected with you. It was really interesting for me to learn about Rabbi B'nai Lappi's uh, crash theory, and seeing my work through that lens is certainly uh, very interesting as well, and, and, and applying that to intermarriage and recognizing that uh, people go through that those same three responses to a crash, which is either to... Uh, insist that the narrative is still correct or leave altogether, which is what the majority do, which is how you know it was a crash, or they pick up the pieces and build something new. And when I think about the Jewish communal approach to intermarriage, even today, I feel that it's dictated by the folks who are following option one, which is to retain the master story that ultimately Intermarriage is not the preference, but if you behave in certain ways that we approve of, then you're welcomed in and then it's going to be okay for the Jewish community. And and that a lot of what's happening in the Jewish community around intermarriage is ultimately indoctrination to be more like us. And I think that that agenda ultimately is not going to engage the large segment of, of intermarried households. I, I'm really interested to hear you make that application from Rabbi Lappi's theory of crash and option one, two, three, because I think that the master story that the Jewish community has is important here as it relates to intermarriage, because part of our master story is that the Jewish community is Jews. Questioning that has, is something that a lot of people haven't done, because this idea is the Jewish community is the set of people that are Jews, and especially the set of people that are Jews and involved in particular institutions. So I'm wondering, what does it mean that the Jewish community, due to intermarriage, is actually made up of a lot of people who aren't Jews now? How does that affect sort of our master story and the work that you do? Sure, thanks. And I think that it's a great question that leaves me in a very concrete way to uh, explain what I meant that intermarriage is not the thing, because the thing is Jewish meaning and, and purpose and why be Jewish, why do it at all. And when you think about particularly intermarried households, and, and this is what kind of, in, in a lot of ways, forced the issue for the Jewish community, those of us in, in intermarriages have to explain why we would do any of this to folks who did not grow up with it. And what's the benefit? What's the value in doing it? And we have to be able to articulate that. And if we can articulate it, 
And if we find the benefit and the value of doing Jewish, then why is it only limited to Jews? And I understand the answer from uh, an Orthodox perspective as far as uh, chosenness or uh, we need that, you know, to ensure that you are Jewish in order to form a minion. But for the most part, most of the activities happening in the organized Jewish community in America, if it's about creating meaning and value for people, and it actually works, it does create meaning for people, why would we want to limit it just to Jews? Why would we want to privilege Jews with it or hold it back only for Jews? And my answer is we don't or I don't, uh, even as I do understand why certain folks do. So you can see that it's not, a, it's not intermarriage because this is a much larger question. And I think it's actually even a chicken and egg question about which happened first, this search for meaning in Jewish community and Jewish life and the rise in intermarriage, because I think it went hand in hand. And, and I think that intermarriage is really a byproduct of a lot of different things that happened uh, in American society in general and to American Jews. And then what happened was the organized Jewish community got real fixated on the marriage itself, and that was simply uh, the wrong thing to fixate on. Just as uh, a, an illustration, when I think of, of my own personal crash uh, in, in relation to Judaism, and I was lucky enough to present at the Foundation for Jewish Camps annual gathering with leadership of the Foundation for Jewish Camp and, and, and Jewish summer camp people, that it happened for me when I was 11 years old at Jewish summer camp, where besides realizing that I liked girls more than they liked me, I also <laughs> recognized that um, the universe is infinite. I grew up in New York City. We don't get to see a lot of stars. Then I was up in upstate New York, and I saw all these stars, and it, it just really, you know, the concept of God and infinity. And, and I was thinking all of these big things, and I realized I don't believe this. You know, I'm, so here I am at Jewish summer camp, and I had the joy of explaining this to people who run Jewish summer camps, and the goal of Jewish summer camp was in a lot of ways not met by my realization that this religion doesn't work for me. When the Jewish community looks at me as an intermarried Jew, and I got married when I was 36, they see that moment as some people, less people now than used to, see that moment of intermarriage as that's when I was lost to the Jewish people. But if you're going to say I was lost to the Jewish people, it happened when I was 11. And that, that's when my crash happened, and that's when I took option two in a lot of ways. And, and here's where this model that uh, I think is, is elegant and very useful, but with all models, I'm always looking for that gray area, the in-betweens. And I would say I'm option two and option three in, in a lot of ways. And the other problem, I would say, with talk, even talking about intermarriage, is the, the incredible diversity. So, you know, if you think about just talking about the Jews, you don't know anything really about someone you meet just by knowing that they're Jewish. You don't know how they vote. You may know percentage-wise that they're more likely to vote one way or another, but you don't really know that. You don't know what they believe. You don't know whether they are supportive of Israel. There's a huge diversity among Jews. That said, 
the diversity among intermarried households is even greater because you actually do have a sliver of intermarried households that are practicing the other religion or Christianity. The vast majority are not. Um, you have a, a segment of the intermarried that are like a reform or even conservative in married households that are deeply involved in the organized Jewish community. And then you've got a, a real incredible diversity in the middle. And so intermarriage as a trend is something that can open up a lot of doorways in, into a lot of interesting conversations about what's happening. But talking about the intermarried, I, I find is, is really problematic, even though the Jewish community seems to do it a lot. And, and one of the things I really appreciate about this forum is the opportunity to kind of explore in depth these really complicated and nuanced things. And I think that intermarriage opens up the door to talk about all kinds of things like uh, tribalism and, and privilege within the Jewish community, power, authenticity. And to me, authenticity is, is about establishing power. So these are all topics I, I'd love to get into around intermarriage. Um, but to go back to this uh, crash theory and to share a little bit about my own personal experience, one of the things I do is I'm the administrator on Facebook of the Jupanese webpage, facebook.com slash Jewish Japanese, because my wife is from Japan, and what I do with this webpage is just throw up uh, any article I find where there's a convergence between Jewish and Japanese, and, and that's of interest to me. Now, is this a new religion, a new form of religion? Of course not. It's just an interest of mine, and there are a thousand people who, who like this page who feel some kind of connection to both Jewish and Japanese, and, and that's not a lot, but it's certainly more than at any other time in history. And that kind of synthesizing is, I think, happening more and more, and... It's something that the organized Jewish community, I feel, is mostly ill-equipped to handle because so many people are kind of stuck with the founding master story and can't get away from it and feel very threatened and feel threatened on these levels that the community is not conversing about, like privilege and tribalism and so on. So this seems to open up another another set of questions that we haven't really explored before, but that I think are certainly in the Jewish communal discussion and worth elevating, which is the question, and it's framed in a few ways. One is this fancy word, Ashkenormativity. Um, the other is in the sense of sort of assuming that Jews are Caucasian and not other, like, how does the role of race and ethnic background and multiculturalism play a role in your own personal narrative? This is a huge part of intermarriage. And right off the bat, you know, I have to acknowledge I am a white male Ashkenazi Jew with both parents who are Jewish. So that puts me at kind of the top of the privilege ladder. And so I am speaking now as an ally and, and not as somebody who's experienced it, but I've done a lot of listening to folks who have, and I do, I am part of a multiracial household in that my wife is Japanese and my children are mixed. And this is hugely important to me because the, the notion of looking Jewish is something that, that's very hard to break for people, 
and myself included. I mean, like I said, I live in New York City. I like thinking that I can tell who's Jewish when I walk around on the street. And it's, it's a stupid thing that I don't like about myself, and I also feel this kind of weird, tribal, positive thing of, of just being able to tell that somebody is Jewish by looking at them. And, and it was once much more reliable than it is now, my, you know, Judar. Uh, it's a bad thing moving forward because it alienates people and it puts people off. And it's never been true, is, is the first thing that, that the Jewish community really needs to understand. It's never been true. But it's much less true now that there is a certain way to look Jewish, you know, a certain hmm. Woody Allen, John Stewart Jewish hmm. look. You want to, to uh, help people get past this without having them feel this sense of loss. And, and I think that that speaks to the whole notion of privilege and, and that people first understand, have to understand what white privilege is because that's the, the most important thing that's happening in the United States today. And when you start to understand that and acknowledge that you have it, if you have it, you also start to see privilege operating in many other ways. So I, I wrote a piece many years ago uh, called, called Born Jewish Privilege, that there is a privilege to, being, to having a Jewish mother, that lots of Jews, they may know nothing else really about being Jewish, but the one thing they know with certainty is that if your mom's not Jewish, then you're not Jewish. And they feel very comfortable telling that to people who identify as Jewish and, and are Jewish patrilineally. It's their father that's Jewish. And those patrilineal Jews may be deeply involved in the Jewish community. They may be uh, very well-educated Jewishly and, and uh, Jewishly knowledgeable. And then somebody who really has none of that but has this privilege of having been born to a Jewish mother can come up and say, well, then you're not really Jewish. And, you know, when I, when I step back, that to me is, is just completely absurd. The, the whole notion of being anything because that's what your parents are is something that for whatever reasons I just want to push back on very hard. And, and in some ways that's, I think, an American ethos is that, you know, it doesn't matter what your parents did. You are your own man or woman. You can make or break your life however you want. And you're not judged on who your parents are. Whether that happens in practice or not is, is a different question. But that, that notion that we should be judged as individuals is something that I bought into at a very young age and flies in the face of this notion of Jewish by birth and you should marry another Jew. You know, I, th those were two clashing narratives when I was growing up that you know, we should judge everybody as an individual, not based on race or religion or creed or color, etc. Except when it comes time to get married and then only marry a Jew. And I heard that from mm. my folks. I heard that from mm. my rabbi and community and so on. And it just, it didn't work, like I said, from a very young age, 10 or 11. I knew this doesn't make sense to me. This is hypocritical. You know, I heard Yehuda Kurtzer from the Hart Hartman Institute once um, describe Genesis Jews and Exodus Jews, you know, and Genesis Jews are basically those for whom the stories of Genesis, which is fundamentally the story of a family and its special relationship with God and, you know, its other other dimensions of this family 
being the family that will eventually become more numerous than the stars in the sky, etc., um, versus Exodus, which is sort of tells the story of a group of people getting a a law, you know, or or civilization, and and kind of um, that that what it is to be Jewish is not so much about a family, but about a set of ideas, a set, whether those are beliefs or practices or whatever. Um, and when Yehuda teaches about that concept, he tends to say, but it's a continuum and most of us are both Genesis and Exodus Jews. Um, and then we have a discussion that, that follows from that. But I'm thinking as, as I'm listening to you talking that one of the real enormous changes that uh, whether intermarriage is the primary driver of or, or part of a package of is essentially a, a fundamentally new notion of who the Jews are that seems to inevitably force along with it a, a, a really major reconceptualization of what Judaism is, right? So if Judaism is not something that is um, passed down genetically, um, or certainly not exclusively so, and we start to think about the non-Jewish spouses of Jews as being fellow travelers in, or potential fellow travelers in a certain way, and then I thought I heard you earlier talking about, well, once we say that the spouses of Jews are potentially fellow travelers, why limit it to the spouses of Jews? I mean, why couldn't anybody say, I want to be part of this and sort of understand themselves to be part of this group of, the, you know, the, 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 the pursuers of Judaism, whatever we want to call them, the Jewishness. And um, I'm just wondering if you could reflect on that and think about, you know, whether this really is the leading edge of a major different understanding of what Judaism fundamentally is. And you said earlier, too, about this, in a sense, forcing the question in your mind and in those of others to say, well, what what really is this all about? And why am I Jewish? And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that question. Sure. So uh, I think that what you're describing is something I'd love to see happen. I think what's more likely is that many different Judaisms will first of all, already exist, but that many different kinds of Judaisms will exist and that this might be one of them. Uh, Rabbi Erwin Kula speaks or has spoken about Judaism as a technology, and I thought that was an elegant expression in terms of kind of getting at this, which is it has to do something. For me, the reason I would be involved in an organized Jewish community is because it helps me personally or, you know, benefits me or it benefits my family in some way, or it helps me make the world a better place. Like, those are the three motivating factors for me, and I can't really think of a fourth. And I often share that lens with the folks I consult with and ask them, how do you articulate for people who are not engaging with your Jewish communal organization how it will benefit either them or their family or help them benefit the world. And there's like a, an understanding that, oh, well, that's, that's a given. In, everyone knows that that's what synagogues do. But we're at a point in time where, no, not everyone knows that, and we need to have some explicit messaging about well, what's the point here? What are we trying to do with this? Uh, and, and why? What does it do for you? What does it mean to do a particular Jewish ritual? Because if it doesn't mean anything, People aren't going to do it anymore, and, and I believe Lex spoke in an earlier podcast about that um, 
people don't feel the guilt or, or obligation anymore. So that's going away. So now it actually has to be working for people. Uh, you know, I often use as an example Jewish prayer. And I think that a lot of people understand what the benefit of meditation would be and have been reading all of these amazing scientific studies about meditation. And can Jewish prayer work in that same way for people? And if so, why does nobody ever spin it that way? And I, again, I think it's this tension between those option one folks who are clinging to this master story about why we have to pray and, and everyone else. And the option one folks are the ones who are, for the most part, running the prayer services. And, and if you turn them off, nobody's going to be running the prayer service. So it's, it's almost a catch-22. But the, it's, that's another point I, I bring up when I meet with people who are running synagogues. You know, synagogues, for folks like us, like me, who are on the outside, that's where Judaism happens. That's where prayer happens. That's where religion happens. When you talk to the folks on the inside, that's often the least, most important thing that they're doing there. Uh, I once had an amazing experience consulting with with a rabbi and her board members, (laughs) and I asked them, what happens to you when you pray? And it, it was a devastating silence because nobody had ever asked them this question before. And then finally, the board president kind of sheepishly said, I, I have to admit, sometimes my mind wanders. And the rabbi turned to her and said, you know what? Me too. And it was like a weight lifted that they were actually able to talk about that prayer was not the thing keeping them together as a community. And it was, it was like the... It was just part of the trappings when there was something different or deeper or more meaningful happening around other things like community or friendship or social justice or whatever other aspects they were doing. The problem is, for, for folks on the outside, how could they possibly know that's what happens at synagogue when the only time they've been to synagogue is either the high holidays or someone's bar mitzvah and they're bored out of their skull by, by a prayer service that's inaccessible to them? how we're thinking about it is, is how can we tweak these things? So we put out there uh, what we called open Tashlich. So, so Tashlich is that service during the high holidays of, of casting away your sins by throwing breadcrumbs into a living body of water. And it's often the synagogue community who physically gets up out of their seats, goes to the water. And we were just thinking, well, this is happening in public, so why not just open it up to everybody? And we created just a little one-pager handout about what this means, why we're doing this, and let's open it up to the whole community. It doesn't add any additional cost to the synagogue unless they want to, you know, spring for the bagels, which we do encourage. But other than that, it's, you know, this is something that I think, again, most Jews and many other people as well would find this meaningful and profound. I love that example. And I think Tashlik is a really interesting point because I, I'll be real. I mean, I'm in rabbinical school. Theoretically, I'm supposed to like connect to all Jewish holidays and be a, a vessel to help others do that. Like Rosh Hashanah is super hard for me. Like I, I don't in, in the liturgy of the service and in many, like it's, it's one of the more difficult Jewish holidays for me. And Tashlich is the part of it that I find most resonant time after time, year after year. It's so simple. 
a lot of congregations make it sort of an occasion for kids to get involved and, you know, play around. But I think it's also very deep. And as you spoke about it, I, I, I actually realized like, you know, I kind of wish that people, if they were sort of high holiday Jews, because you mentioned them before, you mentioned that some people only go, you know, once or twice a year and it's during high holidays. So they never get a sense of what else is happening. I kind of wish they just didn't go to, to Rosh Hashanah services. I, maybe I shouldn't say that, but maybe I should. I, like, I, I think once again, that centers prayer, which for many people is not particularly meaningful. I've always had actually a very easy time with prayer. I love singing. So for me, singing in a room of people is just naturally a good thing. Other people don't feel that. There, there does seem to have been this sense that, oh, it's high holidays. I still like should be there. I still have to be there. Even if I am twiddling my thumbs, not much is happening in my head or heart while I'm praying. I still got to go. And, and there's no baggage for people my age, which I've spoken about before, but it's, it's worth emphasizing because we, we have to with every ritual we do, even the ones that we know people are going to be in the room for, it, like, People are going to come for Kol Nidre, even if it is bad, like if it's not achieving much in terms of ritual value. Like we still have to think, you know, what's happening? That question you asked the board, like what are you doing in your head, in your heart, whatever, thinking about that over and over and over? What is the function of this institution? What is the function of this holiday? What is the function of of individual prayers. When we ask that question, it gets at that broader why be Jewish that you seem to rightfully be talking about. Yeah, and to bring it back to intermarriage, uh, the high holidays are often the first exposure to the Jewish community for the partner who isn't Jewish. And that's horrifying to me (laughs) because it's so inaccessible and they're not even going to get any questions answered for them at that time, even as they're flooded with questions about what's going on here. Uh, There's so much that we could be telling folks about what's going on. And I often wonder, you know, where's the alternative, uh, not even service, but just class that is also happening at the same time that is simply talking about sin and repentance, for example. Like, let's just have a conversation about sin and repentance and, and have a knowledgeable person leading that interesting conversation because the, the three hours of, of prayer service, there's no way somebody new to Judaism is going to be able to, to find resonance in that. And we, but, but the meaning behind it, for those who, who have dug into it, could be very powerful. Now, I think it's, ver- it's a very powerful and meaningful, and yet I still won't subject myself to it, and I haven't been to a Kol Nidre service in 25 years, because it it doesn't do it for me enough. There are moments during the prayer service where I absolutely get goosebumps, you know, and they may, look, some critics might say this is a product of, of liberal Jewish communal prayer services, and others may point me to ones that are full of ruach, you know, spirit, but the bottom line is, 
you know, the schma gives me goosebumps when everyone sings it because I know that those were the words that, that the Holocaust victims carried on their lips into the gas chamber. I mean, I'm sorry to get depressive about it, but that has some power. You know, the, the mourner's cottage has power because I think of the people in my life that I've personally lost. And those moments of connection and power, though, are just not enough to get me into the door week after week or even year after year. I've been thinking about this a lot lately, and a lot of it's really inspired by an article that you wrote a few months ago about Bernie Sanders. Uh, this was at a time that Bernie Sanders' Jewish identity was being questioned, or his commitment to being Jewish, or even his willingness to admit that he's Jewish was being called into question, which I always thought was kind of absurd. But, you know, the idea is that I think that Bernie Sanders really is practicing a different form of Judaism than the form that is often recognized as the authentic form of Judaism by the organized Jewish community, right? His Judaism is a Judaism that um, is more focused on more recent Jewish uh, historical experiences than the ancient ones or than ancient texts. I mean, he's talking about the Holocaust and and that causing him to take politics seriously. You know, he's connected to the Bundist tradition from Europe or the social justice tradition, uh, the American social movement tradition in America. And ultimately, I think that the question is whether this sort of Bernie Sanders Judaism can be passed along to the next generation, right? Whether it can be institutionalized, whether it can be, and I'm not talking about only genetically, right? I mean, I, I'm not saying that the question is ultimately, you know, Bernie Sanders Judaism is a success or failure on the basis of whether his children are Jewish or whether my children are Jewish. I mean, I would hope that my children would be Jewish because being Jewish was a good thing, not because they have a genetic connection to parents who are Jewish. So fundamentally, I think the question is how can we retain the potential power that, that Judaism has planted in a new soil, right? Then how can the sort of um, Judaism that we've inherited be be the soil out of which potentially a, a new tree grows that looks different from the old tree, but fundamentally it is nevertheless rooted in the deep Jewish wisdom, the deep Jewish technology, and yet looks different. So I'm wondering if you could reflect on that a little and, and where does that lead you? One of the mistakes that the Jewish community makes is, not, is in not recognizing what's happening outside of itself. So this is a mistake that it made in, in reference to intermarriage, thinking that the way to prevent intermarriage is to tell the Jews don't intermarry, when in reality, the single, I would argue, the single most important factor that led to the great rise in intermarriage in America is that the rest of America wanted to marry us. You know, it was no longer a tragedy for a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant family to have their daughter marry a Jew. It used to be an absolute disaster for that family if they, if they were to bring a Jew into the And this is in our grandparents' lifetime. This is an ancient history. And Jews became a, you know, equal, if not sought after group of people as marriage partners. And when you're only two or 4% of the overall population, it's more about what the rest of the people want to do than what you want to do. You know, recognizing that this, there are things beyond the Jewish community that are going to have an impact on the Jewish community is so important. And I think technology is another one of those things. I wrote a piece a couple of years ago for the um, Journal of Jewish Communal Professionals called um, Judaism and the Singularity, which you can find online. It's a PDF. And it's long, but basically what I was arguing is that with the coming techno technological dramatic altering of 
humanity that I really believe is going to happen. And, you know, this is the year right now of virtual reality hitting the commercial market. Ten years from now, it's going to change everything. And, And so I open the piece by asking, what would happen if you were able to deeply experience a moving, meaningful Jewish experience, like standing at Sinai when we receive the Torah and have it feel real? And then what would happen if you could also experience the warmth of Jesus' hand on your forehead as he heals you, or uh, meditating in the deepest way with the Buddha? And would you only choose to pick from the Jewish menu, or would you experience all of those things? And, and why wouldn't those things be open to everybody? So uh, if you say, I'm with them, then to me, you're in. You know, I know why there's a segment of our community that says, no, that's not how it works. But I think that's how it's going to work moving forward. And, and just from, again, from my own personal story, my wife is Japanese. I'm, I have been to Israel five times, but I've been to Japan 11 times. And I love it as much as I love Israel. And I feel a connection and I have great admiration for the people there. And I'll never be Japanese. You know, I can't convert into it. I can become a Japanese citizen, but no one there will ever consider me Japanese. But my kids are half Japanese, and I feel a connection to that story as well. And I hope that in their lives, they will feel a connection to the Jewish story and to the Japanese story. And the folks who say, well, no, you can't do both, people do more than both all the time. You know, you have many different identities contained within you at any given time, and at different times, some are more powerful than others. There are certain times where my identity as an alumni of University of Michigan is absolutely the most overriding (laughs) part of my identity, particularly um, when their teams are playing well. And you know, at other times, being Jewish is, is the most important thing. And, and this idea that Jews need to have as their primary or sole identity being Jewish all the time, again, I don't think that works now, but it really is not going to work in the future when you've got every single possible option open to you. And it comes back to that question of why should they do it? So my personal answer is about connection to that history. And when you talked about... Um, Yehuda Kurtzer, who I'm a fan of, talking about uh, Genesis Jews or Exodus Jews, I would describe myself as a Book of Maccabee Jew. Because, first of all, it's not even included, not even included in the Jewish canon, right? So, uh, you know, it's outside of that. But it's also the one that doesn't have the word God in it at all. And it's actually based on, on real history. And it's cool. So that's the one I'm most connected to. And, and that's how I connect as a Jew. But there's got to be 40 other answers as well, uh, and they can all exist at the same time. So could we do a little bit of futurology? I mean, I know it's speculative, but in your mind, what do you think Judaism looks like in 100 years? Yeah, I, I don't think there's one answer, but I think I would propose a number of different answers. And one of them is this, I, is this notion of this is something I feel connected to. This is something that I want to declare for myself in the way that people today say, I'm a gamer. You know, it's an identity that people have. So I think it's a way of identifying with a group of other people 
who share this common interest. And uh, another way is that, you know, this idea of technology, that, that it does something for you, it's this wisdom. You know, the, a very simple example is, you know, the answer of how much should I give to charity? You know, what percentage of my income should I give to charity? And there's an answer for it in Judaism. Or how do I give charity? And there's beautiful conversations in Judaism about how to give charity. And that's not to say that there aren't those conversations in other wisdom traditions, because there are. But, you know, it's compelling. And if presented in a compelling way, people will pull from that wisdom tradition. And again, uh, it may be that somebody is pulling from the wisdom tradition who identifies with a different religion more than with Judaism, but who cares? You know, I, I don't care that, that that's the case. I think the folks that are, again, most concerned about what is lost are the folks who are stuck in uh, this tribal notion of the world is divided by people, and personally, I think tribalism is, is a bad thing. And this is the piece, again, coming back to Bernie Sanders, that I think is, is the, the real, real challenge for the Jewish community, which is universalism versus particularism. And there are some folks having this conversation on, on a somewhat high level. I don't think it's happening regularly on the ground at, you know, Jewish organizations. And what I mean by universalism versus particularism is I am much more a universalist human than a uh, particularist Jew. And I have this vision for humanity that is one where people are mixed. What the Jewish community does as an industry is create more particularist Jews. I mean, we, we don't talk about it, but I would say that's really the ultimate goal of many, many, if not most, or almost all Jewish organizations. We're working on this particularist idea that Jews are a tribe. We use the phrase member of the tribe jokingly. But for universalists, it's off-putting because, first of all, most of us are already part of two different tribes. But more importantly, we have this vision, which never gets any airplay inside the organized Jewish community, of wouldn't it be great if there was more mixing, more mashups, uh, more choices that people can make? And that's a huge threat for people. You know? and, and so a, a question you can ask kind of to, to see where you stand on these kind of things is, is which is more important to, to give to as, as a charity? You know, there are hungry, elderly Holocaust survivors in Brighton Beach, Brooklyn, and then there are children who are starving to death in South Sudan. On the particulars point of view, which I understand, if we don't take care of our own people, who will? And on the universal, it's, well, those kids are about to die. This is, they're in much more dire need, so I want to support them. And this kind of conversation, of course, has been happening at the high levels in, in Judaism forever, because it's, you know, the quote, if I am not for myself, who will be for me? And if I'm not for others, what am I? So it's been there, but it's not happening on the ground, because what I hear, what I see from many, many intermarried households, certainly, is a different narrative, which is not that intermarriage is bad, because that's, that's been the narrative in, inside the Jewish community for decades, and even as it's been tempered lately, there's still the underlying notion that, well, it's not ideal. But for the intermarried themselves, for many of them, some people do buy into that narrative, but for many intermarried, it's actually not just 
ideal, it's better because we're contributing to this great yeah. mixing of people yeah. that's going to make the world a better place. And that's a narrative that has no airtime in the organized Jewish community and is very threatening. I also think that there are lots of other benefits as well to the tremendous amount of intermarriage that has happened in the U.S. that, again, gets no airplay in the organized Jewish community because it clashes with the narrative that folks have bought into about intermarriage being bad. There is an unbelievably low amount of anti-Semitism in the United States, a historically low amount of anti-Semitism. And I believe a big part of that is because there's a Jew at almost every Thanksgiving table. And when it was, you know, it used to be uh, much easier to dehumanize the Jews when you didn't actually know any. And at this point, Almost every American works with a Jew or knows a Jew or has a Jew at their, in their family. You know, I feel that's a very important part of the explanation of how come there's so little anti-Semitism in the United States. But that's not going to be celebrated by the organized Jewish community, of course. Lex and I were talking recently about um, Jews that are criticized for giving financial support, giving philanthropically to, quote, non-Jewish causes such as education, hunger relief, the arts, etc. And, and realizing that those are some of the most profound Jewish causes, right? Like it's perverse that the value system of late 20th century American Judaism seems to be that to be a real Jew is to prioritize being Jewish in every aspect of life, to give primarily to Jewish organizations, to spend most of your time doing Jewish particularistic kind of things, as opposed to understanding Judaism as fundamentally about cultivating a certain kind of person that ultimately cares about the world and that contributes to the world in various ways. So it's understandable that we should contribute some of our time and energy and effort and philanthropy to Jewish organizations if they are cultivating that, that kind of person, because that's, that's a very important thing. So I'm not suggesting that people shouldn't support Jewish causes and shouldn't support them generously, but I'm calling into question the idea that to support something that's not a particularistically Jewish cause is somehow problematic. In my view, it's it's the ultimate thing. The, these are ultimate Jewish acts. So, you know, I, I, of course, I'm thinking about Bernie Sanders again and, you know, his Judaism being called into question because he uh, spends a lot of his time working for the benefit of others. That, that seems to me to be the ultimate Jewish act. So it's troubling to me that the Jews who seem to be most committed to some of the values that the Hebrew prophets uh, and, and various, the rabbis and, and other Jewish uh, leaders and, and leading thinkers and figures from the past have seen as the ultimate Jewish acts, right? The people that are committed to those ultimate Jewish acts tend to be, and of course we're painting with a broad brush here, uh, Jews that are not especially connected to the Jewish community, to the Jewish community's institutions, whereas the Jews who are strongly connected to Jewish communal institutions often seem to be those who are extremely inwardly turned and are not participating very much in those areas in in the world at large and uh, are in instead spending sort of the vast majority of their effort sort of cultivating this particularist Jewish expression. Now, that leads me to my last question before we close, which is that I'd love to hear you reflect a little bit about universalism versus particularism in the sense that, on the one hand, I think that there can be a lot of criticism of an overly particularistic turn, but at the same time, I think that there is a, a criticism that's out there that 
that, that may have a lot of validity to it, which is to say that it's not really possible to be a general universalist, right? That there's a real value in particularism because particularism potentially gives you access to a deep wisdom tradition, to a deep value system that ultimately allows you to be the best possible contributor to the larger society. And that simply to be a universalist is to lack a value system, a tradition that um, pushes you to do particular things to contribute to the world. I mean, I think that that's basically the argument for uh, Jewish particularism, that it gives us potentially a set of values and a inherited tradition of wisdom that, if properly followed, allows us to contribute to the world. And that if that's not happening because of various ways that the Jewish institutionalized world has uh, evolved in America you know, up till the end of the 20th century, that the solution would be one of rebooting that such that um, the particularism of Judaism is oriented towards pushing us to do the kinds of things that uh, contribute to the world at large. But that's not an argument that we should um, give up on a particularistic Judaism. I do think that there is something profoundly powerful to being Jewish. It's why I, I do what I do. And I also think that there is something tremendous and amazing about being Japanese, and I am proud to have family members who are Japanese, and so on. And I think that the best of all of that will be retained. And lots of people can experience it, and lo lots of people will say, this is this is me more than that is me. So I think this is a very similar analogy to what actually happened with intermarriage and Judaism in the United States because, you know, the fear of intermarriage in the 60s and 70s and through the 80s and unfortunately through the 90s and t till today is that the Jews who intermarry are going to quote-unquote assimilate away from even being recognizably Jewish and just meld into the general... U.S. culture. But that didn't happen. And it's because we're not a melting pot where everyone just becomes this kind of gray, blah, nothing. We are like a gumbo. We're a multicultural country, and we celebrate our differences. And, you know, we in New York City, we just had uh, St. Patrick's Day parades all over the city. And, and many of those folks don't have both parents who are from Ireland, but there's a huge turnout for that kind of a celebration, and that didn't melt away after three or four or five or six generations in the United States, and I don't think that's going to happen for Judaism either. I, I think that there's, but folks have to recognize that there's, there's an opportunity for growth or for loss, and if you want it to grow and you want me, more people to experience it, then you've got to recognize what is the universe that you're existing in and how do you empower people to participate in it and, and benefit from it. Great. Well, Paul, thank you so much for being on the podcast. This has been an extraordinarily valuable conversation for us, and we hope that we can talk to you more in the future. Definitely. Thanks a lot for having me. 
I would absolutely echo Dan's thanks. It's been a great episode. Uh, as always, we want to close our episode by reminding our listeners to please be in touch with us. There's a variety of ways that you can do that. And first is on our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. Give us a like and you can comment with your thoughts on this episode and many other posts that we post on that page. We encourage you to visit our website, www.judaismunbound.com, where you can find show notes with interesting links to learn more about stuff we talked about on this episode and you can even find show notes for all of our other episodes and last but not least you can reach out to us via email we love receiving email from our listeners at lex at nextjewishfuture.org and or at dan at nextjewishfuture.org and with that this has been judaism unbound <laughs>